Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. Beginning with the Middle Ages, Western culture became increasingly interested in regulating society through the precise, accurate measurement of time. By the late 14th century, writes my guest Ken Monshine, mechanical clocks controlled the bells in medieval towns. These regular bells arguably produced a change in time consciousness at a general level. A device for measuring abstract time began to be used to regulate both personal and public activities. Ultimately, Monshine argues, without clocks, the Western world as we know it would not exist. Ken Monshine is a historian of the Middle Ages with a particular interest in technology and the arts of warfare. He is also credentialed as a master of historical fencing by the United States Fencing Coaches Organization and is the translator of several historical fencing treatises. Ken Monshine, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. And thank you also for pronouncing my last name correctly. So few people do. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's what uh, that's what German uh, education does for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'd like to um, begin with an idea that you enunciate early on that perceived need precedes innovation, uh, which I like very much because um, that seems to make sense to me. But why don't you explain uh, to it? Simply, it's the idea that someone doesn't just come up with some brilliant idea that changes the world, but rather there's the idea, hey, we need this thing. Mark Zuckerberg, sitting in his dorm room, said, you know, it would be really nice to be able to keep in touch with my high school classmates while I'm here at Harvard. And he came up with Facebook, which, of course, was originally intended to be, well, college students. And then, of course, it snowballed. And sometimes things, of course, do take on unintended lives of their own. But certainly there was a need for so many of the things that made the modern world, or at least a perceived need for them, before they were invented, the cell phone. If you remember it back in the 1980s, or remember that episode of Stranger Things, there was that bulky radio car telephone. But of course, even before that, in World War II, there were these bulky radio telephones that people used to communicate. And there was one guy who was charged with schlepping the thing around. Today, of course, we have an iPhone that fits in our pockets. The same way for really anything else, that idea of, well, we need to light our cities. It'd be good to light our cities because then they'd be less dangerous at night. So then you get oil lamps and gas lamps, and then, of course, finally, electric lighting. And the idea that something will be useful usually precedes the capital that goes into it. If you look at history, there are relatively few things that were just accidentally stumbled upon and then became world-changing. Certainly there are some, but uh, we really want to market before we're going to invest time, capital, whatever, in creating something new. Mm -hmm. And there's also, I think this also means that when technologies come, they fall on ready fertile ground. Uh, people are, are ready to receive them. I think of the the bicycle, which I've come to think of as like one of the most important technological advances of the 19th century, or most important overlooked ones. And so for a long time, guys are saying to themselves, man, I love a horse, but I don't want to feed or take care of it. But I want the freedom of a horse to ride around and behold the bicycle. Um, so the bicycle is weird and new. Um, it's quite an advance forward from the previous sort of... Um, types of bicycles that existed, the one with, you know, gears and, 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 and chains and things. It also leads to lots of other different technologies, mm-hmm. but it, it falls upon, there's a perceived need before the bicycle exists. The safety bicycle, you mean, is it? Yeah, the, sa- the safety bicycle. Exactly. Yes. Right. Um, the, um, what, what hey, are some of the, yeah, let, me say that, let me say that again, let me say that again, because the, uh, there was <laughs> a huge honk outside the, the, the safety bicycle, you mean? Yes. Yeah. The safety bicycle. So, but of course, then also you need to realize that there had to be an infrastructure too, that they had paved roads, that yep. the safety bicycle couldn't have come about in, say, medieval Paris because, well, the streets weren't paved or as well paved. They had planks and such, but they weren't paved in a way that could take advantage of a bicycle. And, and machining had to be up to a, a certain 
standard by that time too, in order to even repair it or know how to repair it and, and so on. And this tendency is means what we call it is that developments are contingent on having the infrastructure or what came before. I like to show my undergraduates Army of Darkness and Ash comes out with his boomstick, <laughs> a shotgun. I ask them, could you make a shotgun in the Middle Ages? Sort of a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court type scenario. Of course, you can't because it's not that people in the Middle Ages were primitive or stupid, but they didn't have things like machining that are necessary to create things like bicycles and shotguns. So what are some of the themes that you see as, as being within the, the history of timekeeping? Because yeah. there's, there's a bunch of them swirling around in, the, in the, the stew of timekeeping. So some of the themes that I see in the history of timekeeping are, first, precision, and secondly, accuracy. So there's a, a couple of paired ideas there. Precision, of course, is the ability to hit the mark, to determine the time and to do it within a, a fine degree of, well, of precision, to not miss. Accuracy is the ability to do that over and over and consistently. And to have a really useful timepiece, at least for the purposes that we're envisioning, such as, for instance, scientific measurement, you must be both precise and accurate. And of course, the first clocks were neither precise nor accurate. But their big innovation, as we'll discuss later, I think, is that they were a truly independent source of timekeeping. That is, they were a, a, a means of keeping time that was independent of any natural phenomena. Other themes are the simplification and the ease of use. If you can imagine a pendulum clock, it requires... You know, quite a bit of maintenance. Certainly a virgin folia clock required uh, quite a bit of maintenance. And clocks that are not portable are not particularly easy to use in day-to-day -day life. But of course, if you think about our cell phones, while well, our cell phones are, at least for our purposes, relatively precise and accurate, I can be sure that all my students have their cell phones in their pockets and that AT&T time is not more than like a minute off from Verizon time, or certainly shouldn't be. And the system clocks all over the world, for the most part, are because you have signals conveyed through the internet and through a variety of other means. They're pretty much on par with one another for purposes of social coordination of when to start a class or when to start a podcast interview. Then they are, you know, they're they're good enough, and they're certainly simple, and they're easy to use. That one big innovation the chronometer had over the lunar distance method was that it was simple and it was easy to use. It is much easier to look at what is essentially a big fancy pocket watch than it is to take numerous measurements and do calculations on a moving ship. So those are the things that really go into modern timekeeping, or I should say modern Western timekeeping, uh, which has become the standard of the world over and which has, make it, uh, ha has made it ubiquitous through our, uh, through our world. There's also, it seems to me that this is in many ways also a history of abstraction, um, which kind of leads us to the next theme. Um, you know, at first, marking time uh, is done in relation to bodies external to you, and eventually it's abstracted from them uh, totally. Or somewhat, yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, well, that's the entire thing is that, and this kind of plays into the philosophical question, is there a platonic time? Is there kind of God's clock in the sky? Newton kind of operated on that assumption, this idea of what he called absolute time, which is sort of a platonic idea of time. Einstein, of course, blew that up. But for medieval people, they were, for the most part, kind of discomforted by that idea. They did think that there was an, one major time-keeping thing that they could abstract time from, which, of course, was the outermost heavenly sphere, which in turn moved the sphere of the stars, if you're familiar with the Ptolemaic universe. But for day-to-day -day purposes and day-to-day -day use, 
timekeeping signals in conventional signs are often more useful. And even the stars can be used as conventional signs. Okay, when this constellation rises, then we say, you know, we say such and such a prayer. Um, the ancient Romans, for them, if you were going to plead in the forum, plead a legal case, you had to do so before the sun reached the midpoint, reached a certain point over the Roman forum, which is, of course, we get a.m. and p.m. from them, ante meridian before the, the middle part, the meridian, and uh, after it, post meridian. And so that is a conventional sign. And we could see if, you know, Neolithic monuments like Stonehenge, it's not been proven that Stonehenge is really a calendar, but we can see these as, as essentially as markers to have conventional signs. Abstracted knowledge, though, well, it requires more than that. And it requires also the envisioning an abstract uh, mathematical universe. The Swiss educational theorist Piaget thought, uh, who talked about children's developmental stages as they progressed from concrete to abstract reasoning, likened the development of science and technology to the development of a child. And of course, I don't really agree with that because that presupposes that people in the past were somehow primitive or that they were not in uh, not as smart as us. But really what it is that to achieve that abstracted knowledge, you need to develop a system of mental tools, which really do change our thought, such as mathematics and trigonometry, but also you need generations and generations of observations of the natural world, particularly of the stars and the constancy of the natural world in order to develop that abstract knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it's also about perceived need, which um, the early Christians had a different perceived need than had their, their predecessors, uh, their sort of pagan uh, Roman predecessors who were in many, in most respects, exactly like them, but they had a different perceived need. So what was the perceived need in say 600 that just hadn't existed in 300? Well, in 600, things were not really, I mean, 600 where is the big question or even move it well, ahead let's say, of it. Let's, let's say in like the, the let's say in the, in the Northern Mediterranean world. So in the Northern Mediterranean world, the one of the big changes was Christianity and the need to say prayers seven times a day. But still, they weren't doing that by, as far as we can tell, by abstracted mathematics. They were still using conventional signs. They had a, a series of conventional signs that were left over from the ancient world. But if you really want to look at where mathematical timekeeping, which of course had been developed by the Mesopotamians, and furthered by the Greeks, where that really lived, it was in the Muslim world, um, and that when the armies of Islam took over the Persian Empire, took over what remained of, of the um, Eastern Roman Empire, they uh, or, or large swaths of it, at least, they inherited that. And they really, really continued that tradition. But, I mean, going back to this idea of perceived need, certainly, um, particularly before, you know, the 13th century and the, the, uh, the siege of Baghdad, the Muslim world was, was way ahead of, of the Latin world, uh, we'll call it the Western world, but the, the Latin world mm -hmm. in its, uh, in its mathematical, ast astronomical and, and timekeeping knowledge. Uh, but again, the question of perceived need comes in, in that, Islam, in many ways, is a fundamentally democratic religion. And there is, in a lot of it, I won't, I won't make any generalities for something as large and diverse as Islam, but uh, my understanding, and nor am I a, a, an Arabicist or an Islamicist, but my understanding is that the uh, there's an uncomfortableness with any sign or any calculation, especially for religious observance, that cannot be understood by everyone. And the the you can see this in Muhammad's last sermon where he he forbids intercalary months, which is why 
the the Muslim calendar is kind of off from the Western calendar, which has different you know different cycles that it depends on. Mm -hmm. So the need to precisely calculate prayer times and to also regulate life by the clock, even though the Muslim world was able to make tremendously sophisticated uh, water clocks and other devices. But the the need to regulate society by those really wasn't there. And you could say the same thing for China. China had you know, immensely sophisticated astronomy and timekeeping, but they also had a system that worked really, really well for them, regulated by water clocks, by which they could regulate urban life or really any any social cycles that they wish. And certainly timekeeping and knowledge of time and season were really important for the Chinese because of the ritual life of the court upon which the mandate of heaven, the legitimacy to rule depended. But the way in which this was determined often didn't always make reference to natural cycles, but rather to their... Um, but ra rather to the, the books themselves. It was sort of meta in a way. But mm -hmm. all these did was they served the perceived need of the community. In the, the West, where we had these tiny, you know, feuding, I won't say feudal, but tiny feuding medieval and early modern kingdoms, then, and you did have the church unifying it, of course, and the common language, and there, there, you had two things. One, of course, was that we had uh, a comfort with an elite of knowledge, right? The Catholic Church, by its very hierarchy, presupposes that some people are more in touch with the divine and some people are more in, more in tune than others are. So you, you, you do have a community of experts in that we have this idea that, okay, we can have a community of experts. And secondly, we have this idea of regulating the world by these, uh, the by these, well, by time, right? But also th this idea of independent observation, maybe this the the spirit of debate inherited from the Greeks, maybe just the fact that people were divided up and contentious, and there was no one power structure as in China, which was the source of all patronage, but. Rather, you had a sense of competition, I think. And this spurred innovation in many ways, especially as, for instance, rulers competed for prestige by having nicer and nicer clocks or nicer clocks than other people and towns as well. But whatever the cause, we find the growth of this sort of innovation and the sort of uh, interest in timekeeping in the West. So, so you begin chapter two with this... Um, great description of the bells of Paris and and the, the language of the bells. Uh, people are, before their mechanical clocks um, are governing their life, they are being governed by this language of bells. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it, it, show, it shows how uh, we were set up in, 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 the, in the central Middle Ages, in the high Middle Ages, whatever you want to call it, um, for that, uh, that sort of time, for timekeeping. So what I'm trying to do in the beginning of that chapter is not just to show you the origins of modern timekeeping, but also to other the Middle Ages, because it's also deeply weird in many ways, because we think of time as something personal. Um, we've internalized the idea of time. That's really a post-industrial kind of thing. And in Paris, you have this bell system, well, really in all medieval cities, I was just using Paris because that's where I lived during my Fulbright yep. grant. Um, and it's, it's polyvalent, I think would be the right word, because it means a variety of things. It's not just the time, but it's also space. Um, you hear the bell of say your parish church, which is also a community you belong to. And you can, you know where it's coming from, right? You can triangulate on it, right? You, you fix not just your location in time. And remember, it's sort of a, I don't want to use the, uh, the uh, Lefebvre's uh, term, but it's sort of a floating time. Um, in, but it's not floating since that it's, it's not definite or there's something vague about it, but rather that um, it's more acute to the natural cycles um, and the, the changing uh, hours, um, the um, natural hours, as it were, uh, which 
shrink and grow depending on the time of the year. But in any case, this this time, okay, this uh, you know what time it is. You know where your parish church is, um, or whatever church that is important to you. If you belong to a, a metier or a guild, or you're a member of the university, then you know, is this a bell that I have to listen to? Is this a be- the bell that governs me and my activities? And do I begin work? Do I knock off work? Do I need, do I get a lunch break now? Do I have to go to another lecture? So this bell system, it's a lot of things, right? It's not just mm-hmm. time, it's also space, and it's also community. Mm-hmm. And it, from there... And you know, oh, yeah, oh, and there's, I, there are bells... bells Go on. Oh, and from there, I guess we can move to, you know, we can say that we've, we've changed that and that um, the today t- clocks don't give us space. We don't know. Well, actually, they do, don't they? Right? The GPS system to some degree. Right. But for the most part, um, our own system of of time tells us where we have to be <laughs> in space, perhaps. Um and not so much about about community. It's very very individual, right? Life is experienced less communally, I think. So there's there, mm-hmm. there is a very large change that goes goes on over the intervening centuries. Yeah, to be in a European city like um, Oxford or Cambridge or Paris, I guess, or um, uh, which uses bells um, a lot is to have a what's well, it there have been a lot of books written about 20 years ago 25 years ago about the sounds the history of soundscape um but it is to feel uh the communal influences of sound uh to be told uh to ha- hear the old curfew bell to hear the uh other bells people practicing on bells to eventually learn um a, as you uh point out in, in medieval paris people have, of course known the sounds of all the different bells it's very hard for us to hear that at first, when you hear a lot of bells ringing, they all kind of sound the same. But people would have known those different sounds and recognized the sound of their bell or the or hear the languages of different bells in this communal soundscape. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. And um, it's strange to us, right? And it's especially strange to us because, uh, I mean, in modern America, we live in... I hate to use the term during the pandemic, but we live in social isolation, don't we? Um, the suburb is a very, very alienating geography. And it's difficult, even in a village where you, you know, probably just have your parish church and, you know, who knows when the priest would ring that when he wasn't drunk, right? But, um, <laughs> but we do, you know, you do have natural cycles and, and natural times. And certainly educated people of the Middle Ages, they, you know, Chaucer's uh, Monsiple, right? They were able to tell clock times from things like shadows. They were aware of it. They were cognizant of it. And increasingly, as the 14th century progressed, it came to, um, I guess, occupy a dual consciousness where a, a lot of people were cognizant of clock time, at least in the sense that we might think of it today, but simultaneously existing with that in the late Middle Ages was still this communally experienced time, which is still something that's, that's going on today. And of course, the uh, seasonal hours, right, which is the proper name for those relative hours that grow and shrink um, with, um, with, this, with the time of year, um, those continue to be very, very important. And if you think of it, in a, in a, you know, just thinking about how artificial we're heading to daylight savings now, we just think how miserable that is for all of us. And how electric lighting and you know productivity and and work time, this idea, this concept of work time is for all of us, which of course was another inspiration, my interest in in the history of timekeeping. Um, this didn't really exist in that work hours, you know, it wasn't always eight hours a day. It it, it grew and shrank, uh, depending on the time of year yeah. very often, certainly for agricultural labor. And you have to remember that at least ninety-five percent of the population was people engaged in agricultural labor. Yeah, I, I just to belabor this point just a little bit more, because I've thought a lot about this one. The reasons I like the book when I when I read it, because it it fits in with so many things that I, I muse on. Um, one of the last places you'll see this two, two different sets of ways of thinking about time or experiencing time is, I think, near a military base, mm. uh, where you can hear the trumpet. 
so uh, this podcast began in the Quad Cities. I lived in Davenport. I taught at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois. And in the Mississippi River between them is Arsenal Island, where there's the still the the uh, the, the old Arsenal, uh, United States Army, well, Joint Services Arsenal now. And it's governed by Trumpet. So there is there is Reveille in the morning at, at 7. Uh, there's, uh, there's the, uh, salute at, um, five, I think five thirty, And when the flag is lowered, um, a, a bugle call that goes back to probably to the crusades. Um, and there's, there's uh, taps and there are other calls throughout the day. Um, and you can hear them. Uh, if it's, if you're leaving your office late at night, <laughs> grading uh, exams, uh, you can hear uh, taps. Uh, and sometimes it, with the sounds, the wind's right, you can hear the the uh, salute. And if you look on YouTube, uh, you'll see that in military bases throughout the United States, kids playing on playgrounds, um, uh, when the salute is called, they all leap off the playground and put their hand over their heart or they salute like their dad or mom would in the direction of the flag. Um, that's kind of what we're getting at. That's a, that's a, in, 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 in interesting ways is a medieval remnant in, in our culture. Yeah. Or something that at least derived from it. I mean, yes. I don't know if the people of Paris would stop and salute a, you know, a flag. No, probably not. That, that That's different. That's different, but there's a, but the, there's a different way of keeping of time and, and, and signifying it and marking it and that, uh, in a way that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Finish your thought. No, no, go ahead. Oh, so that puts in, puts in mind also the top-down nature, right? There's one person who's under, of course, central control who is sounding that. It's not multiple different times, right? It's a community experience time, but it's a top-down time. And, of course, in mm-hmm. Paris, you had multiple parish churches and multiple different signals. Here at a military base, yes. right, it is, it's, it's, it's military discipline. It's, it's top-down. And so the, um, and, and, this increasingly came to be so also in Europe in that rulers began to try to impose varying degrees of success one time on the, at least their immediate domain, you know, in Paris, for instance. And same thing with cities, right? Strasbourg being on mm-hmm. one time, they had this enormous mechanical clock in the cathedral. And this is a really, really, I think, important thing, this idea of, of standardization, even if it's only and can only at this period be in a very limited sphere. But the idea that there is one time um, everyone, everyone listens to it, but this also bespeaks political power that, you know, obviously in a military base, the political power is explicit, right? There's a, yes. there's a hierarchy and there's, a, there's command. Um, but this is something that had to be established in Europe. And one tool by which princes could establish this was through the medium of telling everyone what time it is. So let's get to that. Um, let me fire off some nouns at you and then you explain what they are and where they fit into this history of, of medieval timekeeping. Um, the astrolabe. So an astrolabe is a sort of, if you know what a slide rule is, right? It's, uh, it's a computational device. It's uh, essentially an analog computer. And using it, you can determine from, well, it can, many other functions, of course, but you can determine from uh, observation of the stars or of the elevation of the sun and knowing the date, uh, then you can tell what time it is. Um, conversely, if you know what time it is, you can use it to help you sight stars in the sky. Hmm. Um, the water clock. A water clock is a clepsydra and, uh, in the Greek and this in height. yes, well, my allergies are pretty bad this time of year, but the, the water clock is, uh, it, it's really a timing device, right? And I think we should draw this distinction between timing devices and devices that tell time. And water clocks or clepsydra of various sorts are actually very, very important to the to the history of science. But essentially, it's a clock that works by or by an in, by an independent stream of, of water. And I think we should define for a second what a clock is. Okay, that mm-hmm. a, uh, a something like a sundial or, um, well, I also a water clock, um, actually, let me start that over. So I think for a second, we should take a moment and define what exactly a clock is. A clock 
is something that takes an independent variable, like the flowing of a stream of water or the power, motive power from a weight being pulled on by the Earth's gravitational field and turns it into a constant constant stream, right? Or a, a, a constant motive force that affects something that can be read by human beings as opposed to something like an astrolabe, like a sundial, which is essentially an observational device to read natural things. So a water clock bridges that in some ways in that it's an attempt to create this independent variable in the form of a stream of water that is collected in some vessel and then either has a float that drives some gears or something, or it is otherwise readable to uh, a human being. And there were various attempts going through the 13th century to have um, various sorts of, of uh, regulators and escapements in watercocks that would make them more perfectly independent variables, which would be approaching the uh, the mechanical clock. Well, let's talk about the mechanical clock. What was the essential uh, invention or innovation behind the mechanical clock? The the essential thing that came to really make the first independent clock was the virgin foliate mechanism. Um, it's important to understand that that's not what, what drives the mechanical clock, okay? That the force from the mechanical clock is actually a weight. That's why they tend to be put in towers, so that you have a long drop for the weights that provide the motive force that turn the gears. What the virgin foliate does, and it's called a virgin foliate because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a stick, and uh, in, in Latin is a, is a verge, and it is, um, it, it's a regulator, okay? And it uh, is intended to keep that weight from just dropping to the ground, but rather to measure it out in a regular means, right? So it's uh, an attempt at a harmonic, what we'll call a harmonic oscillator, something that has a regular, regular knowable period. It's not perfect, but it's a damn sight better than what had happened before. And it had made, it made what, what truly seemed to be an independent measurement of time and a more precise and accurate one than a water clock was capable of. And it made this possible. Mm -hmm. And so again, why is this a breakthrough device? And why, what, what's so, what, why is this so, why is this so different than what's come before it? Because at, for the first time, this seems to detach time from sensible things in a real way. The water clock again had been an attempt at that, but it really wasn't good enough and it didn't work all year. And it wasn't, wasn't a perfect thing, right? There was a perceived need for such a thing, but they couldn't quite get there. And then mm. they come up with this, this device, right? This device for, for regulating the dropping of a weight, which in turn turns the gears, which are then readable to a human being. And this really seems to um, physically detach time from any sensible observable thing and at least in theory right if you had a perfect you know perfect clock operator someone who would um correct the clock and you know put the weights back up when they're supposed to etc 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 um you, you've truly got something that is going to to use nicholas Acusa's uh idea see all possible times right see see time as god does in other words, that because of this, this gearing, because of this regulation and this gearing, uh, the clock contains all times within it and that you are seeing the universe as God, who, of course, is outside the universe and therefore outside the world of moving things and therefore outside of time to the Aristotelian mentality. Um, you're seeing the world as, as, as God does. You're truly seeing with, with God's eye. And there's a lot of attempts to do this 
in the Middle Ages, really going all the way back to the, the innovation of the codex over the scroll. A scroll, of course, is experienced linearly, whereas in the codex, a codex, a, a book that's bound in the sense we know it now, you can go back and forth, right? You can pick up, you know, Song of, you know, you can pick up Song of Ice and Fire and you can go to Ned, oh, Ned Stark's dad, you go back and Ned Stark's alive, right? Um, you can, you can go skip around in time. Whereas, you know, the Torah, you know, the Torah, we go through a cycle and uh, we, and we rewind it and we start again. Um, this is, this is an innovation and it's a sort of ironic innovation in that because even though it seems to be the very, very mirror of an absolute time or a platonic time, as Newton would think about it, at the very self-same time, medieval <laughs> philosophers are needing to grapple with the fact that they no longer think that there really is any independent or platonic time or time that would, that's with God. Um, in, in, uh, in, it, it, because they uh, something we call the anomalous turn that time is only something that adheres to real things, material things in this world, and we see beginning really in the 13th century with the uh, reintroduction of Aristotle's physics, we start seeing uh, a lot of questions, right? A lot of questions being asked of what well, what's the nature of time? What is time? And for the most part, um, people of the 13th century think of time and timekeeping is something that is, you know, in some sense, kind of absolute, right? They know they we can't ever really know stuff in, in this world, right? We can't really be sure because we really only have the relative measurements of time. But there's this, this, this tremendous irony, and I still haven't kind of puzzled through it yet. But sometime around 1300, coinciding with the introduction of the mechanical clock, um, we, you know, we get uh, the, the Via Moderna and we start getting thinkers like, um, like Occam and Jean Buridan and um, uh, they're, they're people who follow on from that who are nominalists. And nominalism, to give you a, a very brief process of medieval philosophy, is the idea that there are are no platonic forms, right? And they got this, of course, from, from Aristotle, I should say, uh, that there are no platonic forms, that there that uh, the there is no dogginess that adheres to all dogs. It's just that we as human beings look at dogs and in our minds, that's nomine mentale, um, nominalism, mental names, but we abstract the idea of, of dogginess from seeing all those dogs, right? Or there is no platonic, you know, there's no platonic green that there's only green things. We abstract the idea of greenness from that. Well, this has uh, obviously a lot of implications for uh, Christianity because then there's no Christiness to be in the Eucharist. So obviously they need to somehow defend the absolute in order to not be heretical. But vis-a-vis -vis our interests, right, the history of time, well, we've got something interesting there, right? Um, is there such a thing as time, as real, as real time. And they kind of do something that is kind of brilliant and kind of harmonious and kind, and, um, is also in keeping with this me mechanical clock, which does seem to be keeping time again as God, who is outside time and space as God knows time or God knows the universe. And it's this, um, their thing that is time in the universe is the movement of not the stars, right? Even though the stars were up until fairly recently, historically speaking, the really the 19th century, um, the, the most uh, perfect clock that people knew that the rotation of the earth seemed to be constant. Of course, they thought the sphere of the stars went around the earth instead of the other way around. Um, but that's the most perfect timekeeping that they knew. But they said there's something even more perfect than that, which is the outermost heavenly sphere that beyond the sphere of the stars, right? Just one down from God, as it were, who's outside the whole thing is the, the invisible snow globe that contains the Ptolemaic universe and the rotation of that, that is time. And this is, this, this is an imaginary thing, obviously, even though they philosophically believed it was real. But it's that this, the rotation of this, that is what time is. The nature of time is in that. So at 
once they're able to conserve this idea that time is linked to the movement of real things, of living things, well, not living things, but, you know, material things, um, but, you know, the world that they live in. And at the same time, they are able to make it as absolute as they can. And so by 1400, lots and lots of medieval towns, I guess we don't have a number for that, have uh, a clock, which is regulating, is, is how you put it, time itself became experienced as a result of mechanical processes, as a regular sign given by a machine. These regular public bells arguably produced a change in time consciousness at a general level. A device for measuring abstract time began to be used to regulate both personal and public activities. That's the breakthrough. That's the, that's the big change. That's a big change, and that's not my insight. That's actually Gerard Dorn Van Russell's um, in his uh, rather brilliant History of the Hour, and he did a lot of archival research. And he went through and he looked at these. And he, you know, the big question is what you know what drove these tower clocks being put up, which were being put up all over. But I think it's really unquestionable if you look just at how people in sources and in in writing in various things how they simply express themselves. You find the the uh, references to the time and to the hour um, becoming much much more common, and not by the liturgical hour, you know, vespers, matins, etc., by um, the clock time as we think of it today. Not that clock time is the same throughout Europe, but at least there was the idea that there's this thing which is clock time. So let's fast forward um, to about two hundred years. Uh, that's nothing for a medieval historian. Uh, about uh, to Galileo. So Galileo uh, needs a good timekeeper, but he also and never really got one, I guess. Uh, but he also changed uh, timekeepers. Could you explain uh, that sort of paradox? So Galileo was very interested in questioning the Aristotelian view of the world. Aristotle, uh, as you may be aware, famously said, "Heavy things fall faster than light things." Um, I really like showing, uh, I don't remember which Apollo mission it was, but uh, one of the astronauts is on the moon and he drops a, a geological hammer and a falcon feather. And they both hit the moon's surface. Of course, it's in a vacuum at the same time, right? Which is what we now know is, is, is true. But Aristotle said heavy things fall faster, right? And intuitively, that seems to make it's, sense, right? Okay. Yeah, it's common sense. Shows how yeah. erroneous common sense can be. Just, but it, it, looks, yeah. it looks sensible. Piaget would say, well, you know, they, you know, Piaget, you know, phases of development, perhaps, right? But uh, I've been reading Piaget lately. Um, I'm doing a master's in education. Yeah. yeah, but, um, but the uh, Galileo wanted to disprove this, and so he uh, he did drop cannonballs off the Leaning Tower of Pisa, at, or the Campanile of the the Duomo of, of uh, Pisa, famously. But um, actually, that wasn't how. That was more of a demonstration. The way he derived this is that he rolled balls down inclined planes, but he needed to time them. And remember that the Virgin Folia clock, which was stated of the art in his time, was nowhere near accurate. And stopwatches wouldn't really come around until the 18th century. And even they weren't that, you know, that accurate. So the question is, how did he do this? And he went back to the good old water clock and that he uh, used water to time it. And there's something essentially medieval in the way he did this thing, which overturned medieval thought because he compared the quantities of the water that were released during the balls rolling down the plains. In other words, he took volume of water as a stand-in for time made manifest. And there's, there's a, there, that's an essential syllogism, um, which is, which, which is medieval. But of course, Galileo also wanted to make improved timekeepers and he did a lot of experiments with pendulums, and um, he actually, his son helped to perfect it. And of course, Huygens was involved in this. So it was, you know, we mustn't really think of the idea of one great innovator, but really everyone stands on the shoulders of giants. It's giants all the way down. Um, but he was one of the seminal figures in the development of the pendulum clock. And of course, a pendulum is uh, a true harmonic oscillator in that the periods are going to be more or less the same. You do need um, some, you know, some correction, which is uh, which uh, one of Hugin's um, innovations, I believe. Um, and 
this helped to create, of course, the uh, the pendulum clock, which was um, far more accurate than the um, than than the uh, Virgin Foliate mechanism. Um, I should say that one of the delights of this book is, is there's so many little gems in it. Um, and some of them are people. Uh, one of them is Richard of Wallingford. Um, I won't tell about him. He's 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 fantastic, uh, an, an interesting, very interesting uh, guy. Um, who is one of the, uh, comes up with a really interesting clock mechanism and is also int- uh, a master of trigonometry in his, in his own time. But there's a, a friend of Galileo's, uh, a guy so not nice they named him twice, Santorio Santorio. Uh, can you explain what he did with the pendulum? Because it's, it's um, as you say, it's the first medical timing instrument. Yeah, uh, the pusillogium, right? To time pulses. This idea of also, you know, being able to quantify things so important in modern allopathic medicine, right? We're, we're trying to quantify stuff. This is your blood pressure. This is your, you know, respiratory function. You, you get hooked up to a machine in the hospital. It's a whole bunch of numbers, right? Um, but he, he uh, did this in a rather interesting way. Again, we see this correlation with, of other measurements with time. He had a pendulum, and the idea was that you would adjust the length of the pendulum until it reflected the patient's pulse. And by that, by the sort sort of um, derived uh, thing, you uh, you're able to quantify the the human body, right? Really, one of the first first attempts, first steps towards um, quantifying a physiological process. So Galileo had his volumes of water, and Santorio had uh, his lengths of string for his pendulums. So. Um, Nicholas Acusa also had the idea of um, kind of combining those two way back, you know, I guess he was the 15th century of uh, mm-hmm. measuring pulses with water, but there's no, uh, no evidence he actually did so. Mm-hmm. Um, so from 1400 onwards, clockwork is, uh, everyone is experimenting, it would seem, um, with different types of clockwork and improving clockwork. Metallurgy is being improved. Clockwork can improve that way. Um, and there's lots of sort of uh, offshoots of what we of clocks into other areas of technological development. Could you explain um, automata and their connection to the, really the earliest stirrings of the Industrial Revolution? Yeah. The person who's a real expert on this is Elliot Truitt, of course. But um, I thought I was, I've been so inspired by her work and, you know, various talks she's given that uh, I, I felt I really had to put that in. And if you see these automata, uh, automata uh, uh, me talk good today, huh? uh, <laughs> if you see them, there, there's actually a, um, a show at the Met recently, which, you know, ever, I, I, I pray that people got to see it, uh, which had a lot of these amazing things like, like um, mannequins that could, could write like, early printers almost, right? And everything, of course, is encoded into gears and cams, which are the same things that you use in clockwork, right? We call things clockwork because they're, you know, it's what you use in clocks. Um, but these things, they, they were, they can work as toys, they can work as marbles and wonders. They, uh, they were essentially robots. And these were made to delight courts, right? These were really expensive toys and things for rich, the rich and powerful to marvel at. But, but they could also be put to useful uses as well. And the industrial machines used, well, gearing too, right? Clockwork and things like that. Um, to and cams. <laughs> and cams are so important to any, you know, modern, any 18th, 19th century industrial development. Um, yeah. Yeah, any of that, right? And actually, uh, it was a. Cl- I believe the French clockmaker made one of the first devices to weave cloth, and the, the weavers were were outraged, right? This is going to take away their jobs. Like the first first outbreak of Ludditism was in France, um, and I would I would say that that, that uh, clockwork and the technical knowledge from acquired by making clocks was uh, one of the many indispensable pre conditions for the industrial revolution so let's let's move forward again um to the um the longitude revolution um this is uh dava sobel talked about this of course in her very her best-selling uh book and movie and all the rest of this uh, about longitude uh but uh could why don't you tell that story in your own way you you describe it as 
practical Newtonianism. Uh, what do you mean by that? And what's the connection between that sort of longitude revolution to the industrial revolution uh, proper? Well, I mean, the way I tell the story is that instead of the the whole idea of uh, the lone genius and Harrison and his you know magical clock, because Harrison was a, a a bit of an autodidact and he was a little bit of a crank, and he he got. And the thing that people don't realize about Harrison is that without the expertise of others, he, he managed to make the, the H1 to the H3 were, you know, wonderful and innovative and stuff. But they didn't really work so well. It's only when he took the pre-existing clock making technology and innovations and, and a few ideas of his own, um, like uh, bimetallic uh, regulators to adjust for temperature, that the ocean going chronometer really became possible. But I really wanted to tell this from the point of view of his great rival, Neville Maskelyne, because Neville Maskelyne was at the the tail end of a generations long project to try to tell time as it had uh, to tell the time for the longitude um, as it always had been told from astronomical observations. Of course, you could tell um, your latitude from astronomical observations, but telling telling your local time is not necessarily uh, an, an easy thing to do. So they had this rather convoluted method, which I won't explain because I don't understand it, called the lunar distance method. Um, and it was done by, as science is usually done, by a whole bunch of people working collaboratively, right? Instead of this myth of the lone genius, which is such an appealing narrative, but it's also a false narrative. But no matter how it happened, the ocean-going chronometer became a thing. And this is seemingly taking Newton's idea of absolute time and embodying it in a machine, right? We're, we're, we're getting to accuracy and precision that is uh, a revelation as each, each successive uh, innovation in accuracy and, and precision does seem to be a revelation to the people who, uh, who do it, right? And they, uh, they've got this thing, and no matter where you are in the world, you know what time it is in, back in England, right? So in a sense, the, the local time, um, it doesn't matter. That's not the real time. It's only English time that matters. And the GMT, Green, hmm? yeah, Greenwich Mean Time. Yeah, Green, Greenwich Green, Mean Time, sorry. Yeah, Greenwich Mean Time, right? And so the... the uh, uh, you know, so so the implications of that for imperialism are, uh, I think, obvious, right? This idea that we're going to not just unify the world through trade, but really the world is under one time, right? There is but one, but one time. Um, and the thing is, is this also uh, this idea of of regulation through time, which is of course a medieval idea. I mean. It, it also becomes in industrial time. And of course, um, you know, Taylor, uh, Taylor, Frederick Taylor's positivism, this whole idea of work time and time is money and the idea that um, you can uh, predictably figure out how much production you can squeeze out of your laborers and how much profit and chart that and, you know, put it on a graph and present it to your investors um, becomes, becomes part of that. And the idea of, of keeping work time and the regulator clock, right? The idea of this regulator clock, which was often, you know, people turned them back, right? There was a lot of chicanery um, around around that and work time. But this idea in the 19th century and this idea I really want to discuss of um, private time and work time and this division of time into public time and private time, which goes along with industrialism. It also goes along with the entire Enlightenment project and the Enlightenment division between the public and the private sphere, the former, of course, being the masculine sphere and the uh, latter being the, the feminine sphere of reproduction. Not to say, of course, that, you know, time wasn't, in, you know, industrial time wasn't also inflicted upon women, especially, um, you know, things like Lowell Mill girls. But of course, pocket watches required pockets and women's clothing didn't have pockets. And the, uh, you know, the, the trope of, of women being tardy or not being punctual, of course, became a, a sexist trope that kind of became this, this self-fulfilling prophecy. But I think it's very telling of this. Um, so the entire Enlightenment, this was, you know, the Enlightenment and the industrial project, right? We have our work time and we have our private time. And if you think about a lot of labor movements, it was about um, strengthening the boundaries between private time 
and mm -hmm. work time and also limiting the work times, things like the five day work week and the eight hour work day. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And the tremendous irony I want to point out, uh, or in the current, the, the reason why that is so relevant and so current to today is that with COVID and yeah. with Zoom and with all of this, the distinction between the public and the private, also between work time and non-work time has become completely elided. Um, we yeah. are inviting people into our own homes, right? Children are expect who were, you know, schools are, are, are themselves industrial machines intended to discipline children into the uh, into being good workers, right? Nine to five. And of course, my own rebellion at that is one reason why I'm so interested in time. But now, you know, Zoom is destroying that. But it's not it's not returning us to this pre-industrial model where, you know, with the putting out method instead of going to a factory, right? In your own time after you're done with your farm tasks, you, you know, you spun wool into thread or you wove cloth or you did whatever you did. That was kind of your 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 pre-industrial side gig. No. Instead, all time has become clock has become on the clock, as it were, right? All time has become uh, industrialized. That our private sphere that we're expected to conduct ourselves in our own homes, as yeah, if yeah. we're in the public sphere. It's it's completing what Twitter and other social media have begun. That we are at all times. Um, being judged by our productivity, right? And that that uh, when, the, you log, yeah. when you log on to uh, micro, when you log on to Microsoft Teams, Teams. yeah, when do when you, you first send a Slack, Slack message? message. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that's that sort of thing. That's yeah, uh, there's and, a moral component to that now. And not just that, but you know, people, you know, people are are, are emailing each other with at three a.m. with things, right? This idea that there's there's any time that is not personal time is being destroyed. And together with this is the idea that whatever you do for your job is supposed to be your passion. And there's really, I think, something tremendously socially destructive about this. And I think that we need to, and the fact that the economy is not so good right now means people are afraid to enforce their boundaries. But I think that people, um, the next great thing, the next big thing that we need to do is begin to enforce our boundaries about time and time that we take for ourselves. Well, there's a lot more to talk about in the book. Um, there's, uh, we could talk about theory of relativity and what that has to do with the GPS system and Y2K and why that was interesting and our, and our attitude towards time that that uh, represented or that teased out from us. But um, I want people to read the book so you can find that all there. Uh, I'd like to talk though about uh, some other things related to this. One thing is that this is a book and I'm got it open right here and it's got projects in the back. You can do experiments. I think that's so awesome. Why did you do that? Um, well, cause I mean, I'm ultimately an educator, aren't I? And uh, yeah, I'm a supposedly. Big, yeah, supposedly. Well, I'm actually doing a master's in I've, education right now um, because Lord knows there's no money in history. Uh, and I, uh, I think it's hands-on learning is very important that I believe that uh, just as I came to the subject through my own physical study of fencing, right? And, and fencing is something that's so important to me and, uh, and my own experience, my own internalization of medieval ideas of time through fencing. Um, at the, uh, I think it's important for people to be able to replicate these ideas and these thoughts and, you know, do, and do calculations and really understanding is, is, um, by doing, I think Maria Montessori, you know, was right about that. Uh, and that for people to really, you know, to understand how an astrolabe works, I have an astrolabe, you can Xerox and put onto, you know, put onto a card stock and you can play with your own astrolabe at home. Um. Thanks to the astrolabe and project. Got, and, and pendulum experiments, which are, I've, I've already tried. So very nice. They work. Um, they, they, I, need to, I need to replicate my results. Uh, I need to work it again. Um, let's talk about the, what you just mentioned. You came to this through fencing. How in the world did you come to time through fencing? First of all, what kind of fencing? Uh, why don't you explain the kind of fencing that you do and that you're well, well known for? And also, how did that lead to thinking about time? Well, um, my my side gig, or you know, I, I should say, my real passion, even though one can't really make a living at it, is teaching uh, historical fencing. That is methods of 
uh, fencing derived from written records left to us and treatises from the 14th century through, well, my interest really goes about up through the 17th century. And I'm also, of course, I also fence um, Epe, modern Epe, and my coaching training is modern coaching training. Of course, again, I, I believe pedagogy and, and means of explaining things are very, very important. And, you know, hopefully people listen to this in their car, but, you know, I'm very, become very interested in video, educational video production, but that's getting away from me. So in fencing, what's important to understand is it's not, you need to throw out all sort of the, the cultural miseducation you've gotten on fencing. It's not your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn. It's not like a game of Monopoly where, where we take turns that there are that one makes an action or a movement and that takes a period of time but and then one's reaction or uh, interruption or whatever one might do um, has to be gauged to that other period of time so that's an acquired sensibility or a sense of tempo let's use the term fencing tempo so when i talk about fencing tempo or a fencing time right it can be larger or shorter depending on what's going on and it's an acquired it's an acquired sensibility and this is sort of a fundamental of sword play and this is one of the last remnants of aristotelian time that is still in use in the world and fencing masters of the past um fencing masters of the period i'm interested in um especially you know 14th 15th century used a variety of Aristotelian um, language to describe what you should do and tactics and things like that. And it was this interesting... Can you give give an example? Sure. Uh, So there is a manuscript dating from um, Germany, uh, manuscript 3227A, uh, which is, stands at the beginning of a tradition of German fencing works that goes, you know, all the way to the the late 16th century. And the tradition actually actually uh, persisted uh, beyond that. Now, Aristotle says that uh, time is the number of motion, that is something quantifiable, number of motion with respect to the before and after, meaning uh, it's it depends on, the, the size of your time, right? Times can be bigger or smaller. And this manuscript uses the terms, the, uses those terms in German for that, vor and nach, before and after. So my action could be before my adversaries or it could be after my adversaries. There's also indes, which is, you know, sort of during, which is a German word, not an Aristotelian word. Um, so this idea, idea that uh, of it being the, the the before and after in that Aristotelian form, formulation of time being the number of motion with respect to before and after. Conversely, the Italians use this uh, the same word that we often use today, which is tempo, which uh, one tempo is one integral movement. But a tempo is not clock time. It can be shorter or larger. So if I am going to uh, respond to something someone else is doing, I need to do it in tempo because if they finish their movement, obviously I'm going to be struck. Um, and then, of course, the tempo in Renaissance Italian uh, fencing terminology can be uh, can be divided in so that you have the mezzo tempo, the halftime, right, in the to preempt the action, right. You have an action you can make against another action, which is contra tempo. And so we have this, this sophisticated vocabulary, vocabulary in the codex, right, in the fencing book, which is, let's not forget, it's a static, unmoving, two-dimensional medium. And this language tells us precisely when to act and, and how to act. And this, of course, still persists today in fencing literature, right? In in the technical language um, around fencing, it's become even, you know, even more sophisticated in some ways. So mm-hmm. whereas modern fencing uses clock times, like the uh, lockout on the scoring box to prevent a double hit is some like, I believe one sixteenth of a second, right? So it still uses clock time and electric circuits and things like that. And there's playing time when we actually, it exists in harmony with this idea of the, in, in coaching and in training in the relative timing of the opponent's action. So 
this kind of contrast and this dichotomy and this earlier way of thinking and then, you know, realizing that, of course, this way of thinking about time and fencing time is something that is uh, uh, applicable to a lot of things in the medieval world and represented a whole different way of thinking and being that preceded the modern world um, and in some ways gave rise to it and really hooks into some really deep questions in the history of science, technology, and thought. That's really what got me interested in the topic. Um, that and my general resentment of having to wake up at a certain time in the morning, which uh, has been lifelong, I believe. <laughs> so. My guest today has been Ken Monshine. He's the author of On Time, A History of Western Timekeeping. Ken, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. And thank you. Uh, glad to talk to you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.